Father, as we reach for our Bibles, it's our prayer that your Holy Spirit will take it and use it well within us. It's been encouraging to be together, to be reminded of the faithfulness of your servants, Tom and Heidi, on the field in Nigeria today, of the great example that um, our brother George is, of just a willing servant to get involved in ministry, however you would open doors. And then the great joy of just joining our voices and even reminding ourselves today of the great incarnation, that we're not a forgotten people, that we're very loved and that you desire relationship with us. Father, would you just help us to be a repentant people, help us to to be humble in our hearts, and as we take our Bibles, help us to receive it as your living word, and may your Holy Spirit uh, just work in a great way, in that mysterious way, and uh, opening our minds and illumining truth. Father, we commit ourselves to listening well. Help us to be disciplined worshipers. Help us to be those who would go from here then and not uh, just ignore what we've heard or what we've seen in a mirror, but that we would go and react to it and, and address things accordingly. We want to be a growing people. We want you to change us. We want to be godly. We want to overcome the flesh. Show us how to do these things and use your word as that chisel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I was on a field trip to the fire department. That's a good day, isn't it? Um, when you're with your little boy and you're at the fire department and you get to go look at the big trucks and what a blessing to have first responders in our community and just the incredible equipment that's right here in all these metal garages and brick garages all over our community. I was thinking as uh, about my message in George's testimony and the pictures from Nigeria, same thing in Malawi. I mean, there's more fire trucks and excellent equipment in just in the county of Jefferson in West Virginia than there is in probably the whole country of Malawi or Nigeria. We're blessed people. Well, one afternoon I was on a field trip with Jonathan and, and we're touring the fire department and it's a lot of fun and, uh, and we're sitting in a room and the guy sits us down and he's going to tell us about fire. Well, I've been interested in fire ever since I was six years old and Johnny Simon and I lit the field on fire and, and ran like crazy. And uh, I learned something that day. Do you know that there's three things that make fire happen? I mean, it's kind of like you know, but you you forgot what you learned in sixth grade science. You have to have O2. You have to have oxygen, right? That's why you can put a lid on a candle jar and it'll go out. So you have to have oxygen, the air. You have to have fuel. You have to have fuel. That's why Johnny Simon and I took his knife and cut open a big pillow and pulled out all the stuffings. We thought that would make excellent fuel, and indeed it did. And and it got out of control in a hurry. you got to have fuel, you got to have O2, and you have to have heat. And the guy's lecturing us, and then he was showing us the different kinds of fire extinguishers and, and how to cool down a fire. And if you get it below a certain temperature, it can't combust. Or if you take away the oxygen, it can't combust. Just stop and think about it. It's really marvelous world in which we live where our Lord allows and he designed in our in the marvelous creation for us to be able to do things like that, to take fuel and air and temperature and bring them together and have fire. And I'm really glad we have fire. It kept us warm all night last night because we could create fire. But, you know, in the right circumstances, when things get out of control, those three things can come together and be really dangerous and even deadly, can't they? You bring the O2 and the fuel and the temperature together in an inappropriate way, 
can burn the house down and you get in big trouble. And that's the mindset you need to have as you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Because when we start in 1 Timothy 6, the Apostle Paul is pointing out to young Pastor Timothy at the church in Ephesus that there are three things that he better watch out for because if they come together, they're going to burn the church down. Three things, and you watch, if they come together, they make a most dangerous combination. It's incredible. Let's read our text. We read this text last week, but then remember we went to 2 Kings chapter 5, and we had that most interesting testimony of greedy Gehazi, and we learned that the love of money indeed will destroy your life if it's out of control. And we said last week that his testimony is reason for us to listen closely this week to Paul's instruction. I want you to see these these three matters that come together and make a deadly combination. And then I want you to see how the Apostle Paul responds to it. He is going to identify for young Timothy. He's going to explain in detail the identity of these guys. But then he's going to present a whole new reality for us so that we can avoid this problem. And so we're in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, with the last few words of verse 2, he says to Timothy, you teach and urge these things. Make sure you communicate this. Verse 3, I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Verse 3, if anyone, notice that it's a broad message to the church. It's a wide message. Anyone, if anyone in your church teaches Listen to this, a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness than he is. And he's going to give a whole list of what this guy is. I want to stop for just a minute and I want to make sure we understand the word doctrine, doctrine. Doctrine is what Jesus taught his disciples who in turn several our apostles as well, and others, and through Christ and the teaching of the apostles, it is the belief foundation of the church. Everyone has, a, has doctrine in their lives. Everyone believes something. Your worldview is based on doctrine. You might have made up your own doctrine, and you might think what you think, but that's your doctrine. That's your framework of belief, and the guiding principles upon which your belief is founded. And so as Bible-believing Christians, we take the Word of God, which was expounded by Christ, taught to His disciples and apostles, which was then expounded even further under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as they wrote Scripture, and out of that... We compile our doctrine. There's all kinds of doctrine. Our very understanding of God, for example. A.W. Tozer said, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because what you think about God, when you think about God, will have everything to do with the guiding and direction of the rest of your value system and your worldview. If he's a big God then you're a humble person and you surrender to his word and you fall in under his doctrine. If he's a little God and you're a big person, well, then that affects everything about you as well. But everything about God is based on, it's the doctrine of God. We have the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We have the doctrine of Jesus. Is he who he said he is? Did he rise again, authenticating his deity? Or is he just another good old prophet boy out there 
with, you know, a good teacher, we really like him. No, he can't be. He'd be a stinking liar if, if he's not God. We have the doctrines of our salvation. They're pivotal. They're so important. Your very eternal destiny rests upon your doctrine of salvation. And everybody's got a doctrine of salvation. How about this doctrine of salvation? All your good works outweigh your bad works on God's grand scale. You're kind of standing there in front of God and he piles up all your bad works on the one side of the big eternal scale. And then he, he filters out all your good works and... And it's kind of, and you're like, oh, man. I think that's one of the most common doctrines of salvation that people operate on. You know that? When it gets right down to it, they just think they're not bad enough for God to pitch them into hell. When it gets right down to it, they just don't think that they have been an offense in the face of a holy God. And so they make up their doctrine of salvation. Oh, my friend, so important to stick with the, the doctrines of Christ that were built upon by the apostles when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by me. And to understand how the apostle Paul built upon that and where he taught in Second Corinthians how he who knew no sin became sin for us at the cross so that we by faith could receive his righteousness. In Romans 5, he expands. Romans 4 and 5, he talks about how our justification, that is, our position in Christ, free from sin, is built solely on the fact that Christ shed blood on the cross was a substitutionary death for us. And that by faith, looking through eyes of faith, back to the cross, we can admit our sinfulness and we can receive forgiveness from a holy God. That's the doctrine of salvation that Jesus taught and that he participated in and that the apostles built upon. And it goes on and on, all kinds of doctrine. A lot about your marriage is built on your doctrine. Do you really believe that you are a reflection of Christ and his bride, the church? And you husbands, do you going to love your wife the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? And you wives, are you going to honor your husband and respect him And allow him to govern over you in an appropriate way that God designed in the same way that the church is to be submissive to Christ. You see, this is all doctrine. It's all doctrine. But what happens is people enter the church and they think, it doesn't matter. You can't really understand what Jesus taught and the apostles. And who's harder to understand than Paul? And then they start making up doctrine. And people make up doctrine all over the place. Even in the church, in Sunday school class. And in youth group. And the apostle Paul has three things that he's going to point out here. Let's continue to read our text now. If anyone teaches, verse 3, a different doctrine, now look, and does not agree with the sound, that means the correct, the stable, the sound, the integrous words of our Lord, the true words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness. In other words, listen, one of the reasons, one of the ways you know that you are in a church or a class that has Godly, sound teaching according to Christ and those who, the apostles, is that the end game, the end result is godly living. You can see a change of life. 
You know people all over the place. They've been going to church all their life and some of the worst pagans you've ever been around. It's because they're under teaching that is not sound doctrine and it doesn't result in godly living. All right. And so godliness and change of life is always the fruit of correct doctrine and teaching. Always. That's one reason why we preach so much around here. Why we preach God's word verse by verse. Because we believe as we unfold the word of God and it falls on your ears that the Holy Spirit will use the word of God to touch your heart so that the person can become a child of God and change and live the life that God has called them to live. And it results in godliness. Ah, but the Apostle Paul's worried about something. Let's read on. He said, The teaching that accords with godliness, it results in life change. Verse 4, This person is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. That is, if he teaches a different doctrine. The guy comes in the church, teaches a different doctrine... He's puffed up with conceit and he understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy and strife, dissension, slander, which is malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind. They're not even saved, some of the people, and deprived of the truth imagining this guy does, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That's interesting, isn't it? Here's the three things I want you to look at in this passage right here, the first part of our passage today. It it seems to me that the Apostle Paul is pointing out three things, and the first one is doctrinal deviance. Doctrinal deviance. Didn't you see that in verse 3? If anyone teaches a different doctrine than what was taught by Christ and the apostles, and we're, we're deviating, we're, we're taking a variance, we're spinning off of this. Listen, this is a repeated theme of the Apostle Paul. He hammered away always at the importance of sound doctrine in the church. He's already done it in in this book a couple times. He's going to do it again in 2 Timothy when he writes young Pastor Timothy, who's at Ephesus. When he writes him a second letter, he's going to talk again about how important it is for the church to have sound doctrine. It's what he wrote the Galatian church. Remember that? The believers in Galatia in chapter 1, that's where he said... He said, don't let anybody ever teach you another doctrine of salvation other than that which you've been taught. Don't even let us come in and say we changed it. Say, we taught you the truth. Now, hold on to that truth. Galatians 1.6 says, even if an angel comes to you, and it is interesting, isn't it, that probably one of the fastest growing faiths around the world They also had a guy running for president that's part of that faith. Their whole faith is based on the fact that an angel appeared in upstate New York to a young boy to straighten out the doctrine of salvation that had become twisted. And Paul said, I don't care if an angel even comes to you, don't believe it. If we come back to you and teach a different doctrine, don't believe it. Paul cared so much about right doctrine in the church. Why? Why does he care so What's the big deal? It's kind of a boring subject to most of us. Today we're going to talk about doctrinal purity in the church. Why don't you help me figure out how to balance my checkbook or something? You know? Why don't you help me figure out how to get along with my people at work? 
Well, I'll tell you, part of the reason is if you have a church that's teaching you the truth, you will be able to balance your checkbook a little better and you will be able to get along with people at work. Do you know that the Apostle Paul understood something? He understood that the body of Christ, the believers, the churches, the church is the bride of Christ. And he didn't want that bride corrupted. That the church is the body of Christ. We are God's representation on earth. And so we need to accurately display Christ. And if we are caught up in false doctrine, how can we ever accurately present Christ to a needy world? And do I have to convince you that the world needs Christ? I say, where are you living if you don't think this world would be better off with Jesus than without it? And Paul knows that the church becomes absolutely ineffective, that everybody's marriage and family and life in the church looks just like the rest of the world if we don't keep our doctrine straight. And the only way we're the light of the world and the salt of the earth is if our doctrine is correct and if we're the kind of church that God called us to be. And so the Apostle Paul, who committed his entire life to church planting and communicating the message of Christ, cared deeply that it hold together because of sound doctrine and that watch out for these false teachers. The first thing that he points out is doctrinal deviance. But then notice what he says in verse 4. This person, if somebody comes to you and does not hold on to the words of our Lord Jesus, he is puffed up. Add to that our second dangerous ingredient of personal arrogance. Doctrinal deviance, add to that a teacher with personal arrogance, we read down to all the problems that it creates and notice that his very motivation at the end of verse 5 is he imagines that his teaching of his false godliness is a means to financial gain. Add to that financial extravagance. By that I mean a, 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 a lifestyle that has to get better and bigger. And next thing you know, the preacher's up there wearing gold rings and gold jewelry and gold this. And he's cool. He's getting dropped off in his high-end car. He's got his big beach house. And if he's a really cool ministry, he even has a helicopter to pedal him around for his ministries. And he's starting to tell people that, that you can be like him and that you need to know the blessing of God on your life. And what's wrong with you if you're not paying your bills? You need to pray so that the heavens will open and God will pour out his blessings on you. And then he spends all the rest of the time in his personal arrogance, illustrating it by telling you how God poured out his blessing on him. And there you go. And we imagine televangelists, don't we? But it's not just televangelists. That's the dynamic of the three ingredients that are so dangerous when they come together. Paul, warning Timothy in the church, you watch out for those teachers that enter into doctrinal deviance, throw in on top of that their personal arrogance, and then this whole mindset of a financial elegance that they have. They think that it's all about personal gain. You put those three things together in the same guy, and you've got a thing that will burn your church down. I'm telling you, some of you have lived through it. Some of you have seen it. Some of you are watching other ministries live through it. And so the Apostle Paul very quickly goes on to break it down. And number one, what he does in our text is he says, I want you to know his identity. Let's very quickly look at this guy's identity. The guy who personally is very arrogant, he has turned away in deviant doctrine, and he's all about finance and money. He's all about the ministry for personal gain. He's distorting ministry. Notice his identity. Know his identity. Number one, know his identity. The Apostle Paul says in verse 3, we've already emphasized it, that he is contrary. He's contrary. He's doctrinally deviant. You know what contrary is, right? You ever deal with a contrary horse? 
You ever deal with a contrary dog? You ever deal with a contrary husband, wives? You know what contrary is. Contrary is, he just won't do what I want him to do. I want to go this way, and they just keep turning out this way and doing it. That's what he is doctrinally. That's what he is in his spiritual leadership in the church. That's why it matters so much who the spiritual leaders of a church are. That's why you should be here tonight to hear their testimonies. And and the membership needs to be here to affirm with the elders that God's hand and spirit upon these elders that are being appointed to men. Because you don't want contrary men being appointed to the eldership. You don't want them leading spiritually. He's contrary. Not only that, we've already emphasized pretty well, verse 4a, that he's puffed up. Number two, he's conceited. You want to know this guy's identity? He's contrary. He's conceited. Notice what that leads to. He's controversial. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. He's contrary. He's conceited. He's controversial. And he's quarrelsome, number four. I was thinking about that phrase right there where it says, he has an unhealthy, see it at the end of verse 4, middle of verse 4, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce all kinds of disunity in the church, dissension and envy and strife in the church. And I was thinking, what are some of the words that in my lifetime of ministry have been talked about because they're divisive words? This teacher takes words and then turns the meaning of these words. This is kind of a broad category. I've already implied that I believe the profile of of a of a arrogant health and wealth televangelist type guy who's perverted the gospel of Christ for personal gain, and you got to watch who you watch. That 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 fits his description. What Paul's talking about, but I don't know that they had any guys quite like that in the church at Ephesus. They had guys though that. They just, in their own arrogance, they were arrogant enough to say that they could say what the Bible means. And it went against the teaching of Christ and the teaching of the apostles, against orthodoxy. So here's an illustration of a couple things. I was thinking how words in the Bible are not well received by people and they argue over these words. For example, I already talked about in our marriage the doctrine of marriage and the the husband is the head of the home and the wife is to be submissive to the husband. And don't we have all kinds of controversy in the church parsing those words? No, 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 you don't understand. Submit does not mean submit. And, and, and um, all these kinds of things. I have a book on my shelf, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. It's an excellent text. You know what it is? It's a total response to all the divisiveness in the church and in evangelicalism that has come about because they don't want to receive the words of Scripture and they take the words and redefine them and turn it into a different teaching. I mean, how much clearer can you be? In, in second, First Corinthians, in Second Corinthians, Paul taught on this. He said the head of the Christ is God and the head of the man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and God has an orderly chain of command. No, no, you don't understand. That's not what that means. And so there's controversy over these words. Well, what does submit mean? It's really clear. No, we don't like that. No, you've been influenced by a culture that hates the word of God. You've been influenced by a culture that cannot stand what they understand to be an abuse of women, which it's not at all. The Christian doctrine of marriage should, more than any other single thing, protect women and elevate women and help them become all that they can be more than anything else. After all, what, man wouldn't, what woman wouldn't want a man who loves her the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? Whoa. That's our job that's so hard. Maybe we should change the wording there a little bit. 
how about the word flood? I was thinking about how the word flood. Genesis chapter 6 says that the whole earth was flooded and and we got all kinds of people all over the world writing lots of books and arguing that you can't even believe the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And furthermore, there's no way that the whole world flooded with water. It couldn't happen. Yeah, I was there. I know it couldn't happen. The Bible says it happened. The only way you can understand it is that the whole world flooded. And here's Whitcomb and Morris's excellent book called The Genesis Flood, dealing with people not accepting the words of Scripture that's caused division in the church. How about... How about the area of music? You say, what about music? I doubt there's been one issue that has caused more disunity in the church than people arguing over nuance and the meaning of music. And if, if it has beat two and beat four, then it's of the devil. And if it's beat one and beat three, then it's okay. And, and they're arguing over words. And you laugh, I'm telling you, there's nothing that Satan has used probably more than music to destroy unity in the church. How about a, a doctrinal theme that maybe you missed? I was just glancing at my library and I pulled some books. This is an excellent text by a great scholar, evangelical scholar, who's our contemporary named Millard Erickson. Millard Erickson, a few years ago, 10 years ago, there was a huge issue floating around the church. You might not have heard it, but in leadership and in seminaries and training where they train pastors. And they were saying... You know where the Bible says that God knows everything and God is omniscient and God is all? That's not true. God really doesn't know everything. And so Millard Erickson writes a whole book entitled, What Does God Know and When Does He Know It? Doesn't that sound like a dumb book? What do you mean, what does God know and when does he know it? He knows everything and he always knows it. No, 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 no. That's not what it really means. It doesn't really mean. And there was a whole proponent from some fairly decent scholars, fairly decent seminaries, who began to teach that God does not know the future and that God is waiting to see the future unfold. What kind of God is that? Now, I've probably oversimplified every single one of these arguments, and I in no way think that we should not have theological discussion, nor should we dig deep and read books and talk about things. But if you stop and think about it, and let's say you fell off of Mars and landed out in our woods, and you had a tent and a flashlight, and let's give you like a horrible Bible, like NIV 2011 even, and you're sitting out there, and you're sitting out there, and you're reading, and, and you're reading your Bible... Guess what? You would never come up with the concept that a day doesn't mean a day. And that a flood doesn't mean a flood. And that God doesn't know everything. And that Jesus isn't God. You just can't come up with that by a normal reading of scripture. You have to make it up or you have to be educated to the degree that you have an understanding. So that you can come in your personal arrogance. And you can tell us that's not what the Bible means. And if you believe that the Bible's words just mean what they mean, you are certainly from West Virginia. Well, that's a little bit of a flavor of what I think Paul's talking about here. Let's know this guy's identity quickly. He's contrary. He's conceited. He's controversial. He's quarrelsome. Notice uh, in the end of verse 4 and verse 5, he's the source of constant friction. The ESV uses that phrase, constant friction. And not only that, at the end of verse 5, we find out that number 6, he's a con man. He's a con man. He's doing it all for money. Number one, the Apostle Paul wants you to know the identity of these teachers. But then he transitions into some teaching about money. 
what is the main motive of these false teachers. And he transitions into the teaching about, the, about money, and he wants to define a whole new reality. Number two, he wants to define reality. The Apostle Paul wants to define reality for the church and for people so that they have an understanding of how they're to live. Verse 6, look what he says. The first reality is, number one, a striking. It's a very striking reality in the sense that it is totally in contrast with the world. It's totally in contrast to what you see on television. It's totally in contrast to everything that you know in this world. Number one, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Okay? Great gain is not necessarily monetary gain. That's what he's saying. Materialism is not necessarily great gain. Bass boats, snowmobiles, deer rifles, uh, granite countertops, um, ice-making refrigerators, that's not necessarily great gain. Because you might have all that and be the most miserable person in the world. And miss the whole point of why we're here. And so it's a striking contrast. And it's a, it's a whole new reality that the Apostle Paul wants us to know. And it is this. Godliness to be like God. And to live in surrender to His Word. And to walk with Christ. And to live in obedience to His Word. With a spirit of contentment. That, my friend, is great gain. I, I made a real cool chart. I'm proud of it because I made it myself. Look at it up here. And you're not going anywhere until I explain my chart to you. Well, you can get up and walk out anytime you want, I guess. But look, we have to think fast and wrap up. So the green part is eyes that see Christ. Eyes that see heaven. Matthew 6, laying up treasures in heaven. 2 Corinthians 4, for the things that are unseen are more real than the things that are seen. You're living for the next world. You're not bound to this earth. You do not love the world nor the things in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You're not bound by this world. And so you're maturing and you're growing in godliness and you have this growing eternal perspective that's based on the teaching of Christ and the apostles. And as you progress, you see that your contentment level grows. See that? As you grow spiritually, see down on this end, there's hardly any contentment. On that end, you see it's all contentment. As you mature, as you grow, as you have an eternal perspective, as you see the invisible. But notice the opposite is true. That if you have an earthly perspective, and, and Paul's word is of the flesh, that is the residual of our, of our old person, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, how you long for some of those old fleshly ways. And you long for the things of the world. And it's the fight. It's why Paul's going to say next week, fight the good fight, Timothy. Don't give up. It's why he says at the end of this passage in verse 11, you, man of God, flee all this stuff. Why? I'll tell you in the next verse, but he says, it's fleshly. You're spiritually immature. Your eyes are only on the here and now. Your eyes are only on the material. You're all about money and things. And your discontent is great. On this end, it's materialism and discontent. On that end, it's all contentment. I should have probably labeled those ends. I could probably improve that chart. And so it marks us as a mature Christian when contentment settles in. Godliness with contentment that's great gain. You ever been with somebody who's dirt poor, but who's a totally godly person, and you walk away from your conversation, and you say, that is the richest person I've ever met. They're just rich in Christ. They understand who they are. They're rich in what they've laid up in heaven, and they don't even hardly have a soda cracker and some ketchup to eat for lunch. Here's some marks of a contented Christian. 
six marks that I made up real fast when I was working my message. It just, I'm, what I mean by that, it came to me quickly. And I thought, um, I think that's worth sharing here. From your pastor, marks of a contented Christian. Number one, a contented Christian will spend less than they make. Do you know that discontent is, is at the heart of overspending? Oh, I gotta have it. Well, you don't have the money. I don't care. I gotta have it. So what do we do? Slap it on the card, right? This, a contented Christian spends less than anybody. By the way, you watch out. Advertising. You ever notice how advertising, the end goal of advertising is to make you discontent with what you have? Does your car smell brand new? I'll bet your brakes squeak. I'll bet your car's a piece of J. I'll bet you better go down there. I'll bet they can work out the finance and get you one of them brand new nice cars. You know what I mean? You mean you mean you don't have a flat screen TV? You mean you don't have cable? You don't have a dish? You don't have what do you call those things that they hold and they flip with their finger and they write on it? The gla- the glass lens on it? I'm trying not to know iPod. You don't you don't have one of those? You have a landline telephone? What's wrong with you? I don't know. I'm just a contented Christian. Just an old fogey. You see, number two, and it's closely related to number one, a contented Christian is also marked number two. They know the difference between a need and a want. You, you hang around a Christian who is godly in Christ Jesus with contentment and they have great gain in their life and you'll find somebody who can define the difference between needs and wants in their lives. I'm not saying it's wrong to want things. But you better be careful. We'll learn more in just a minute if we can get to it. Number three, can, a contented Christian can truly be happy for someone else who has or receives something they really desire to have. Let me say that one again. Number three, A contented Christian can truly be happy for someone else who has or receives the very thing they really desire to have. That's a tough test, isn't it? Where'd you get that golf club? That's the one I've been looking at online. What do you mean you got that there orbital disc sander in your shop? I've been wanting one of them for a long time. You know what I'm saying? Can you look at your buddy and say, man, I am so glad you have that because now I can borrow it. But (laughs) number four, a contented person is usually a very generous person. Did you ever notice that? They can give away things. They're not selfish and holding inward. A, A contented Christian, come in. We don't have much for supper, but help us eat it. Oh, you need to take this car. I don't need it. Do this, do that. Number five, a contented Christian. Their lifestyle and choices are characterized by a consistency and stability rather than extremes. They don't binge shop. They don't have to have to have another pair of shoes. I had a guy, I bought a $65 table saw from my dad's old neighbor in Michigan when I graduated from Bible college. I do a little bit of woodworking and I had this little table saw and it was just a oldie goldie like 1950s little table saw and he sold it to me for 65 bucks. 
And I had that in my garage at our first ministry and a man from our church came around and he saw some of the stuff I was making in, in my garage just with this old table saw. And he takes his trailer and hooks it to his pickup truck and he goes down to Sears and he buys five big stationary power tools all at one time, swiping the card. And then he hardly used them. It was an extreme. This guy was always on extremes. If his buddy had a camper, he went and bought a camper. His buddies got into motorcycles. He went and got in, got him a motorcycle. Always, always swinging around instead of a contented Christian who can say, this is my lifestyle. This is how I live. Just relax. Number six, finally, he maintains, a contented Christian, you'll notice, maintains a spirit of gratitude, is free from grumbling when going without and recognizes God as their caretaker. Number six, a contented Christian maintains a spirit of gratitude, is free from grumbling when going without and recognizes God as their caretaker. I just thought that was a pretty good list to challenge us this morning. We're going to end with that right now, and we'll pick up the further on the new reality of our lives um, and the caution that he gives us uh, about materialism and money and how it will snare us and hook us and sink us to the bottom and spear us through if we're not careful. It's very deceptive. Let's bow our heads and let's just ask ourselves in conclusion, am I a contented Christian? Am I a contented Christian? Some of you might need to ask, are you even a Christian? Do you know how Jesus died on the cross for you? But how how set on the world are you? How stuck in the things of the world are you? Are you growing in godliness? Paul's great concern was that these false teachers were teaching a false godliness. And when he redefines godliness for us, he says it is a godliness with contentment. And that is great gain. Are you rich in Christ today, my friend? Do you need to to spend some time revisiting your value list? Your worldview? Maybe you need to straighten out false doctrine in your life and get an eternal perspective. The very next verse is a stress-relieving perspective that Paul's going to give us, and he's going to say what Gary prayed in his prayer this morning. Naked we came into the world. He's quoting Ecclesiastes. Naked we come into the world, and naked we go out. How come we're all so fired, bent up, out of shape about what happens in the short time in between? You can't take anything with you. You better prepare for the next place. Would you ask the Lord to just give you an eternal perspective? We'll talk more about it because there's a lot of questions that can come to mind right now. But just ask God to teach you how to be a contented Christian. So, Father, would you fill us up with Christ? Would you just help us to to love Jesus more and and things of this world less, help our mind to be preoccupied with heaven and not earth. Help us to have an eternal perspective, I pray. Change our hearts, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.